Welcome to the JNMP podcast, a new edition for 2018. This month, we have the patient's choice, outlining anti-inflammatory approaches to stroke prevention, followed by our editor's choice, a discussion about monitoring disease progression in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I'm now joined by this month's patient choice, Professor Peter J. Kelly from HRB Stroke Clinical Trials Network, Ireland, University College, Dublin, to discuss anti-inflammatory approaches to ischemic stroke prevention. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a bit about the importance of atherosclerosis in cerebrovascular disease and how this links to increased risk of stroke? Well, uh, we know that ischemic stroke accounts for about 80% of all stroke. And within ischemic stroke, atherosclerosis is an important contributor to uh, the pathogenesis. So there are about four main lines of evidence to uh, support this contention. The first is that we see uh, clear-cut stenosis or narrowing uh, of, the, uh, of the culprit artery in a significant portion of patients with ischemic stroke. So we see that in the arteries of the neck, more typically in the carotid arteries in between 12 and 20% of cases. And then we also see atherosclerotic stenosis or narrowing of the infracranial large arteries in the circle of Willis uh, in about eight to 10% uh, of Caucasian patients. And in African-Americans and in Asian patients, intracranial stenosis is far more common, perhaps between 30 and 50% of uh, ischemic stroke patients. Secondly, we, we know that atherosclerotic narrowing of penetrator arteries is an important contributor towards lacunar stroke. Indirect evidence suggests that atherosclerotic disease is an important contributor to cryptogenic stroke, also known as embolic stroke uh, of undetermined source, which uh, accounts for approximately one third uh, of ischemic stroke cases. So we know that we can detect early atrial fibrillation in perhaps about 15 to 16% of such uh, cases of cryptogenic stroke, suggesting that many of the remainder may be due from embolism from atherosclerotic plaque. We also know that aortic plaque and non-stenosing plaque in the carotid arteries is very common in ESOS, present uh, in the aortic arch in up to 28% of cases, and in the ipsilateral carotid artery in about one third of cases. And finally, we know that randomized clinical trials, which target lipid accumulation in atherosclerotic plaque, have shown benefit for stroke prevention, regardless of the subtype of ischemic stroke that uh, the patient has suffered. Your paper talks about the inflammation hypothesis. How, how do these inflammatory pathways potentially mediate the development of atherosclerosis and then sort of lead to stroke? We know that inflammation is important in the development of atherosclerotic plaque. Uh, traditionally, plaque has been considered a, a disorder of lipid accumulation and fibrosis. But actually, inflammation is important in all stages of development of atherosclerotic plaque. So uh, we can conveniently divide the uh, development of atherosclerotic plaque into three stages, initiation, progression, and then plaque rupture and thromboembolism. So in the early stage of plaque development and plaque initiation, one of the earliest phases is the ingress of circulating inflammatory blood cells, uh, monocytes, uh, across the endothelium into the intima of the artery. 
And this happens in response to uh, stimuli uh, such as hypertension or constituents of cigarette smoke, which promote the uh, expression of adhesion molecules on the endothelium of the artery, uh, to which the circulating inflammatory cells attach and then migrate into the intima of the artery. Once in the intima, these inflammatory cells come into contact with LDL particles, low-density lipoprotein particles, which they then ingest and further differentiate to become uh, foamy macrophages. These foamy macrophages are a hallmark of the early development of uh, atherosclerosis. These macrophages further then differentiate into pro-inflammatory subsets called M1 macrophages. And these pro-inflammatory macrophages release uh, important cytokines, particularly interleukin-1-beta and tumor necrosis factor alpha. These are very potent upstream cytokines which promote a local inflammatory response within the plaque, but also a systemic inflammatory response, which can be detected in the peripheral circulation by upregulation of downstream proteins, such as C-reactive protein and interleukin-6. As the plaque progresses, uh, other cytokines uh, promote the uh, recruitment and the proliferation of smooth muscle cells from the media into the intima of the artery. These smooth muscle cells start to express matrix proteins, in particular collagen, but also elastin. And the combination of these proteins, smooth muscle cells, inflammatory macrophages, and the endothelium form a fibrous cap over the progressing atherosclerotic plaque. T lymphocytes are other uh, types of inflammatory cells which are also important in this uh, activity. In particular, T helper cells uh, secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines such as interferon gamma, which further promotes a feed-forward cycle uh, of inflammatory uh, gene expression and of inflammation within the plaque. Counteracting this uh, process to a certain degree, are regulatory T cells, which uh, express inhibitory cytokines, in particular interleukin 10. As the plaque then further develops, we see uh, apoptosis of these macrophages, which release cellular debris into a core nidus within the developing plaque. This nidus becomes the lipid rich necrotic core, which con contains the debris of the uh, dying macrophages, released lipid. Uh, inflammatory cells around the edges, sometimes some hemorrhagic material, and it contains tissue factor, which is a very important procoagulant protein. Inflammatory cells adjacent to the uh, fibrotic cap of the plaque uh, release proteolytic enzymes, uh, in particular metalloproteinases, uh, or so-called MMPs, and one of these, MMP9, is particularly important in degrading the integrity of the fibrotic plaque. Eventually, the fibrotic plaque erodes or ruptures. This releases the uh, contents of the lipid-rich core into a communication with the circulating blood in the lumen of the artery. And platelets then come into contact with tissue factor, promoting the development of a platelet-rich thrombus, uh, which in many cases in patients with stroke will then break off and embolize to the brain causing an ischemic stroke. So thinking about those inflammatory markers, 
what have clinical trials demonstrated in terms of efficacy of anti-inflammatory treatments for secondary stroke prevention? Yes, well, th this is a, de a developing area, a, an exciting and rapidly developing field. Perhaps the first trial that attempted to address the question of whether uh, suppressing inflammation might be associated with prevention of vascular events was a trial called JUPITER. JUPITER uh, relied upon the pleiotropic action of statins. Uh, so, in other words, in addition to the known lipid-lowering effects of statins, uh, they also have other effects, uh, prominent among which is an anti-inflammatory effect. So in the JUPITER trial, uh, apparently healthy patients without any uh, history of stroke or cardiovascular disease, and with no indication for statin treatment uh, at the time the, uh, the trial was done, that is, they had an LDL cholesterol of 3.4 or less, and an elevated C-reactive protein defined as greater than two milligrams per liter, these patients were randomized to receive either high-dose resuvastatin, 20 milligrams per day, or placebo on top of standard medical care. Over 17,000 patients were recruited into the trial, and at the end of a follow-up, there was a marked reduction in C-reactive protein in patients who were treated with resuvastatin. CRP was reduced by 37% on average uh, in this group. As expected, there was also a reduction in LDL cholesterol, which was reduced by uh, 50% in patients treated with resuvastatin. So we can see that as expected, the statin was having effects on both lipid lowering and on inflammation. The trial was stopped early due to efficacy. Uh, the primary composite measure, which was a measure of cardiac events, stroke and vascular death was reduced by 46% in patients who were assigned the statin uh, therapy, a result which was highly statistically significant. In a pre-specified secondary analysis, patients uh, had a lower risk of stroke also, and the risk of stroke was reduced in the statin-treated patients by almost half, by 48%, a result that was also statistically significant. Uh, Jupiter was a very interesting trial, but because of the non-selective action of statins, it was difficult to be sure how much of the effect was due to lipid lowering and how much of it might have been due to an inflammatory effect of the, an anti-inflammatory effect, I should say, uh, of the statin therapy. More recently, we've had more direct evidence which uh, indicates that uh, inhibiting inflammation may reduce vascular events. This is the CANTOS trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the middle of 2017. And briefly in CANTOS, a monoclonal antibody that is specific and a direct inhibitor of inflammation called canakinumab, uh, which targets interleukin-1-beta uh, which is an important upstream cytokine in the inflammatory response, was tested. So in CANTOS, patients were randomized to canakinumab at one of three doses, 50, 150, and 300 milligrams, given subcutaneously three monthly, compared with placebo. Over 10,000 patients were included. Patients included had, were patients with coronary disease and not stroke, and this is important when interpreting the findings. 
And in addition, as in Jupiter, patients had to have evidence of a low-grade inflammatory response as evidenced by raised C-reactive protein uh, defined as greater than or equal to two milligrams per liter. At the end of follow-up, the composite endpoint in Cantos, again a combination of stroke, coronary events, and vascular death, was significantly reduced in the patients who had received the monoclonal antibody at the two higher doses, 150 and 300 milligrams. So the uh, relative risk reduction in patients treated with the monoclonal antibody, canakinumab, was 15% in the 150 milligram dose, a result that was statistically significant. In a predefined uh, secondary analysis, the endpoint of stroke was analyzed, but no significant reduction in uh, stroke outcomes was observed. It's important, however, to note that the trial was not powered to detect a, an independent effect on stroke. So CANTOS provides an important proof of concept that anti-inflammatory therapy can uh, inhibit uh, the development of vascular events in survivors of at least of myocardial infarction. But CANTOS had several limitations. Uh, first of all, the size of the benefit was relatively modest, just a 15% reduction. Uh, in events. The monoclonal antibody must be delivered by subcutaneous injection and isn't a convenient uh, oral tablet. And finally, the, the agent used in the CANTOS trial is quite expensive. The estimated costs for rheumatological disorders for a year's supply in the United States are in the region of $200,000. So we need to see if we can identify less expensive agents, perhaps, that might be more conveniently uh, administered by mouth. And uh, we need to test these agents, particularly in patients who are at high risk of stroke, in particular those who have uh, survived an, an ischemic stroke with uh, no disability or moderate disability, or in patients with TIA. And this is what we are doing in the CONVINCE trial. Uh, CONVINCE is testing uh, an agent called Colchizine, which has been around for uh, hundreds of years. Uh, Colchizine is a, a, an oral anti-inflammatory agent traditionally used for the treatment of gout and other rheumatological disorders. Colchizine is a potent anti-inflammatory agent, usually well tolerated at low dose, and it has several other advantages. It's known to be safe, it's easy to administer by mouth, it's inexpensive, and it's known to have pleiotropic anti-inflammatory effects acting on the inflammatory cascade from several angles. There is preliminary uh, data from a coronary trial called Lodico, suggesting that colchizine may be effective for the reduction of uh, vascular events. In the Lodico trial, 532 patients with stable coronary disease were randomized to either colchizine or avoid colchizine on a background of standard medical care, including statins and antiplatelet therapy. Uh, at the end of three years follow-up, there was a 67% reduction in the uh, risk of coronary events, stroke, or vascular death in patients who were randomized to colchizine. So in the CONVINCE trial, we are including patients with uh, TIA or non-cardioembolic ischemic stroke, uh, which has not caused major disability. And we're including patients relatively soon after their qualifying stroke or transient ischemic attack. 
within the time frame of 72 hours to 28 days. And we're randomizing them to uh, receive either low-dose colchicine, uh, half a milligram per day, on a background of standard medical care, such as statins and antiplatelet agents, compared with standard medical care alone. And these patients will be followed for a median follow-up period of 36 months to test whether the addition of colchicine to standard medical care can additionally reduce the uh, remaining risk uh, of stroke and coronary events in these patients. I think we all look forward to the results of that particular CONVINCE trial. That was Professor Peter Kelly. This month's patient choice is, of course, free for download on jnmp.bmj.com. I'm now joined by Dr. Ruben van Eyck from the Department of Neurology, University Medical Center, Utrecht in the Netherlands. Ruben and I are going to be discussing his recent paper in the JNMP, looking at the monitoring of disease progression in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis with plasma creatinine. Ruben, welcome to the JNMP podcast. Well, thank you, and thank you for the introduction, and uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, to participate in this podcast. No problem at all. Uh, Ruben, what are the major challenges in designing ALS clinical trials, particularly when attempting to measure disease progression? So I think the biggest challenge actually in ALS trials are the extensive differences between patients um, and more uh, specifically the wide variability in their prognosis. So for example, uh, one patient may live up to six months while the other patient may live up to uh, 10 to 15 years. And um, these differences in survival time are also reflected in our measures of disease progression. Uh, so for example, when you look at muscle strength, uh, one patient may lose up to 90% of its uh, muscle strength uh, during 12 months, uh, while the other patient might remain practically unchanged. Uh, so from a trial design perspective, and uh, actually in an ideal world, every patient would progress at the same rate. And in that case, you can easily show efficacy of an experimental drug already in a small group of patients. And as soon as the intervention arm shows a difference from the placebo arm, you could already show efficacy. So in ALS, the problem I think is due to this extensive variability between patients, a lot of noise or a lot of unwanted variation is added when measuring treatment effects. Uh, which subsequently uh, actually inflates the number of patients that you need to show a difference between treatment groups. And considering the rarity of ALS, this is actually something that you don't want because it complicates uh, not only the conduction of clinical trials, but you also need a lot of uh, more patients uh, in your trial to, to show the efficacy of a treatment. Uh, so I think the, the primary challenge actually in ALS trials is to improve population homogeneity and to develop endpoints that are highly sensitive to detect treatment effects. So thinking about these highly sensitive endpoints um, in a heterogeneous population, sort of tell us a bit more about plasma creatinine and, and how it does actually relate to ALS. Plasma creatinine is actually a, a breakdown product from uh, creating phosphate, primarily produced in muscle tissue. So normally creatinine is removed from the body through the kidneys and therefore plasma creatinine is, is used often in diagnostic testing, for example, to, to diagnose kidney failure. Uh, or kidney function. So in a normal setting, creatinine is, can be measured both in the urine or in, in blood, uh, and it's actually conducted uh, usually in routine laboratory tests. And the advantage of creatinine, I think, is that you uh, don't need specific laboratory equipment. So if you would use it in, in a trial, you can use it actually 
uh, quite easily and implemented quite easily in, into new uh, centers. Uh, plasma creatinine is, is produced by muscles and the production rate is also relatively constant. So that uh, means actually that during the day, uh, plasma creatinine levels don't really fluctuate too much, as for example is the case with uh, glucose. And another thing that we know is that plasma creatinine in normal healthy subjects is strongly related to the amount of, of muscle mass. So this also explains why uh, the mean level of plasma creatinine in males is much higher than in females, just because males have proportionally a larger amount of muscle mass. So to get back to the relationship with ALS, um, I think the relationship with ALS is mainly through uh, muscle and muscle tissue and muscle mass. Um, because one of the hallmarks of ALS is actually the wasting of muscles and the reduction uh, in the total amount of muscle mass a patient has. And this reduction in muscle mass to a reduced production rate of plasma creatinine um, and thus a lower level of creatinine in ALS patients. Um, and actually during the diagnosis of patients, this is quite a, common, a commonly observed finding. So the patients have a low plasma creatinine already at diagnosis. So in our study, almost 45% of the patients uh, had a low level of creatinine. You can also imagine that as, as ALS progresses, um, there will be further reductions in muscle mass. Uh, so the rate of production of plasma creatinine will also be further reduced. And this creates actually the potential to um, measure disease progression with plasma creatinine. We'll get on to um, sort of diagnostic or potentially the markers in a second, but I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about your study in particular, the one published in the JNMP, and how reliably did plasma creatinine compared with other classical endpoints usually used in clinical trials, how sort of reliably did it monitor the disease progression? Yeah, yeah so, so in our study, we primarily looked at the overall uh, group level correlation uh, between endpoints and between the classical endpoints. Uh, and we found that the rate of decline in, in plasma creatinine uh, is, is actually closely related to the rate of decline in, for example, functional endpoints such as the ALSFSR or uh, even stronger related to the decline in muscle strength. So I think on a, on a group level, plasma creatinine can reliably uh, measure the average rate of decline as compared to other endpoints. Uh, but what maybe is, is more interesting for uh, patients themselves is, of course, when you look at the uh, individual level. We did not really look uh, at the individual level to the correlations, but you could think, for example, that when you look at a purely bulbar patient with only bulbar symptoms, this will show uh, some kind of disease progression in functional uh, skills such as the ALSFRSR. Uh, but because the, yeah, the relative amount of effective muscle mass in, in bilber patients is, is quite small, it's unlikely that it will also cause a decline in plasma creatinine. So there will not be a decline in plasma creatinine, where there will be a decline in ALSFSR. Vice versa, you could also imagine a patient that only has a spinal uh, onset. And we know in spinal patients, there might sometimes be a lot of uh, weight loss and a lot of loss of me uh, muscle mass, while functioning is quite good. So in that case, it, it could be hypothesized that actually plasma creatinine will be the one that's going to show disease progression, whereas the ALSFRSR uh, does not. Uh, so I think the question how reliable can plasma creatinine measure disease progression as compared to other endpoints on an individual level, I think it's very difficult to answer. But uh, on a group level or trial level, I think um, it is very reliable. 
And that sort of feeds back to your original point about the heterogeneity of this patient population, um, particularly in terms of site of onset and um, disease duration, things like that, and how it might be used in conjunction with other clinical endpoint tools such as the ALSFRS. Could the plasma creatinine be used as a prognostic or a diagnostic marker for these patients? And you, you mentioned that a little bit just then in terms of the individual use. If not, sort of why, why can't you use it as a prognostic or a diagnostic marker? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's a very um, valid question and a very interesting question. So to first start at the diagnostic, uh, as a diagnostic marker, I think uh, plasma creatinine you cannot use to diagnose patients on because plasma creatinine is, is actually just reflecting the amount of muscle mass, I think. And of course, muscle mass can be affected by much more other causes than ALS alone. I see it more as as a, as a comparison, for example, with muscle weakness. So if there's a patient uh, in the clinic who has uh, weakness only in the left arm, this does not directly mean that this patient would have uh, ALS, but it's going to be the combination of factors that is going to make uh, the physician wonder whether this uh, patient has ALS. So I think that the plasma creatinine uh, on its own is not very valid as a diagnostic marker, but maybe in combination with other markers for example, uh, neurofilaments or uh, maybe even a biomarker panel. And of course, in combination with the clinical uh, presentation, plasma creatinine may help to uh, give more um, certainty about the presence of ALS or excluded. Purely uh, uh, diagnosing patients on only creatinine is not going to be possible. Um, so to get back to the prognostic point of view, um, I think that plasma creatinine is a very good prognostic marker so it could be used as a prognostic biomarker especially for survival um, and this is actually also that we know from the literature and has been shown before and we uh, also see this in our study again uh, that we show that there is a strong relationship between uh, the risk uh, of mortality and the level of uh, plasma creatinine uh, and this is also in a longitudinal fashion so as soon as we see a decline in plasma creatinine the risk of death is increasing in, in individual patients so uh, on an individual level, you could uh, use it to say something about prognosis and about disease progression in that way. And it would also maybe allow for a more uh, dynamic prediction. So you could, for example, measure plasma creatinine every three months and provide the uh, patient with new prognostic information. But what, what I found was interesting was also that we, and this was, I think, not, not clear from other uh, research, uh, that there was also a large difference between and males and females. Uh, so we already know that females, of course, have a lower level of uh, plasma creatinine, uh, but the drop in plasma creatinine in females is also more strongly related or increases, leads to a higher increase in death risk than as compared to males. Um, still, you could use it in males. Um, and we show also that for both females and males and also uh, bilber patients and spinal patients, there were all strong correlations with uh, death risk and creatinine. So I think this all indicates that, that it can be used as a good prognostic marker. And, and you've talked about it just a bit. And my last question was about whether you'd recommend using plasma creatinine as a marker in future clinical trials. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that a little bit more. Um, you know, it sounds like it can't replace clinical endpoints, but, but maybe used in conjunction with. Is that how you feel about it? Yes. So I think the question whether plasma creatinine could replace, uh, for example, mortality. I think that's a question of uh, surrogacy. Uh, so in our study, what we do show is, is the strong correlation with mortality. 
but to determine whether plasma creatinine um, is a true surrogate outcome, so if it really can replace mortality, uh, you first need to show that in a trial that the treatment effect is also correctly uh, reflected in plasma creatinine. So, for example, if you have a trial with a very beneficial treatment effect on survival, so it extends the survival of ALS patients, you would also like to show this in plasma creatinine. So, if plasma creatinine would not show this treatment effect, it could never replace uh, mortality because in that case you would just miss treatment effects. So to determine surrogacy, you need to actually measure plasma creatinine in conjunction with, with mortality and then determine whether plasma creatinine can correctly classify the treatment effects on mortality. But maybe on the other hand, maybe that's what you also already started about is that it's also questionable whether we actually need to replace uh, mortality in our trials. So, for example, in other fields, such as uh, cardiovascular medicine, uh, where trials are lasting 10 to 20 years to determine, for example, uh, myocardial infarction, it makes actually sense to determine the treatment effect on surrogate endpoints such as blood pressure or cholesterol level uh, in order to reduce trial length, because if you can reduce the trial from, for example, 20 years to two years, there's a very beneficial effect and treatments would be on the market much quicker. But if you look at ALS trials, actually 18 months of follow-up is usually already enough to determine uh, whether there's a treatment effect on mortality. So I think in, in for ALS trials, replacing mortality is, is maybe less beneficial. And maybe where we should be heading to is, is uh, and what's maybe more interesting, is to develop endpoints that actually combine several endpoints. So, for example, combine your mortality with your plasma creatinine or combine mortality with uh, ALS FSR or other functional endpoints uh, because both contain unique information. So, if we look at mortality as an endpoint, it tells something about the survival time of an individual patient. Uh, but mortality on its own does not tell anything about how was this patient functioning during life or how fast was the rate of progression during life. And this information is unique in, uh, for example, ALS FSR or plasma creatinine. Uh, so if you combine those two sources, you combine actually two information sources of uh, unique information and you maybe even have more uh, information in the end about your treatment effect. And if you have more information, you can uh, also reduce the amount of patients that you need and you can uh, optimize trial designs for ALS. Ruben, thank you for joining me on the JNMP podcast today. Well, thank you. And uh, I was glad to participate. So for all the listeners out there, this month's editor's choice is, of course, as always, free for download on jnmp.bmj.com. And thank you all for tuning in.